Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In today's episode, Father Streitenberger covers paragraphs 198 to 267, What is the Trinity? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! Good evening, everyone. Today we are going to cover the um, beginning with paragraph 199 to paragraph 267. Paragraph 199 to 267, which deals with our profession of belief in God the Father. And under that, really, belief in one God in three persons, our belief in the Trinity. Paragraph 199 articulates, I believe in God, following the Apostles' Creed, the beginning of the Apostles' Creed. So the first, we might say, the first step of our belief, the first element of our belief, is that we believe in God, not just in a God, but that this God exists. In paragraph 200 in that section, we get the first line of the Nicene Creed, I believe in one God. So we believe in a God who exists. We also believe that he is one. The Christian faith confesses that God is one in nature, substance, and essence. Throughout this whole section, really, on God, um, and really I would even say on the whole creed, it's much like a castle or a house in which there are different layers of foundation and different levels um, of the house. You might use the image of um, layers of brick, that first there might be um, a more solid, substantial brick at the very lowest level to kind of hold up the rest, and then each are piled up, are layered up at a time above it. The elements of the creed, the points of the creed, kind of build on each other. So just as we first profess a belief in God, then we go to the next step, a belief in one God. That if we believe in God, the God as the definition of God ought to be, then there can only be one of them. This is sort of a logical conclusion, but it's also the truth of revelation. That God reveals himself as one to his people. We hear in 201 this sort of thrust of revelation in Deuteronomy 6.45. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God. When we talk about God and his oneness, we are introduced to this concept of what we call the divine attributes. The divine attributes. 
which describe God in his oneness. They are kind of um, synonymous with his oneness. They express, they describe the very nature of who God is, of his oneness, of his being. In paragraph 202, there's a quote from the Fourth Lateran Council. And it describes some of these, what we call these divine attributes. That as we believe in one God, we also believe that he possesses perfectly these, these attributes, these qualities. That he is true, that he is eternal, that he is infinite, that he is unchangeable, that he is incomprehensible, that he is almighty, and that the three persons indeed um, are but one essence, substance, or nature, and that they are entirely simple. So these, these adjectives, we might say, describe God in his oneness. He is unchangeable, he is infinite, he's eternal, he's incomprehensible, we cannot fully understand him. Um, He is beyond change, and he is simple. Simple in the sense of no parts or um, no complexity, that you cannot, in a sense, break this unity into smaller parts. The heart of the revelation of God, because of course we know that by reason we can understand that a God exists and that he is personal, but it requires God reaching out to us, revealing himself for us to know him, to know God, to believe in God, and to believe in one God, to know that he is one. And at the heart of this revelation, not just that who God is and that he's one, is that God gives us his name. And if you remember when we talked about revelation, God's reaching out to us, there was this notion, um, this image that St. Irenaeus of Lyon used, that revelation is really about man and God becoming accustomed, or rather man becoming accustomed to God, coming to know him gradually, just like a human relationship, that God slowly reveals himself over time. Well, we know that in all human relationships, the crucial part, the part where we really get to know someone, is when they reveal their name to us, when they say who they are. Um, That name kind of summarizes in some sense who they are. It gives us um, a way to kind of summarize or um, express the very essence of who that person is. And in the same way, God then reveals his name to us. And he did it, as we say, progressively over time. He gave different aspects of his name to people like Abraham, to Noah, to the other patriarchs. But we know that the ultimate revealing of his name, where he gives his precise name, happens, of course, to Moses at the burning bush. 
And in that experience, if you remember, God expresses himself in kind of two names. His real name, I am who am, or the Hebrew Yahweh. But then he also describes himself as, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Which in some senses, um, we might say, God's favorite nickname You know, I am Yahweh, but you may um, also know me as this. Now that first, or that title, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, reminds us, and Jesus, of course, points this out in the fullness of Revelation, we read this in the Gospel, that that means that God is living, that this is a living God. It is, that name is a promise, it reveals something about him. That this one God is someone who is personal, who is involved, who has a stake in our lives. He is the God who was with Abraham, the God who is with Isaac, the God who is with Jacob, and therefore the God who continues to be with us. So it gives kind of another aspect of who God is, that he is living and personal. But then, of course, this great name, Yahweh, I am who am, the name that is revealed. Paragraph 206 to 209 gives us different aspects of what this name is pointing to. First, we are reminded that this name, I am who am, is a name, which means that we are able to have some knowledge of God because he reveals himself to us. God has given us some knowledge of him. But it's also a very mysterious name. What does this mean, I am who am? In some sense, it almost sounds as if it is a riddle. But it also reminds us that even though we can know God and we can come to some understanding of him, he is ultimately a mystery. And this is the balance as we cover really the whole creed is this understanding of what the word mystery means, what the word mystery means. Mystery means that we can have a knowledge of something, we just cannot have an exhausted knowledge of something. We cannot know it in its fullness or in its completion. There is always something which transcends us and which escapes our ability to understand. So I remember when I taught religion in high school, um, you know, people, the you know, the kids, when you ask them what a mystery is, they were like, well, that means it's something that we can't know. Well, you know, then, then how can I adequately give them a test on the Trinity? You know, if, if all they can say, well, it's a mystery, we, we can't know anything about it. Well, and then I would remind them that there are incorrect answers to a mystery. We can get the wrong understanding or the wrong information. So a mystery is not something that we can't have some understanding of. And it's certainly... It's certainly not something that we can get right by whatever we say about it. 
there are wrong answers when it comes to mysteries. And it is something which we can know, but we cannot fully exhaust. And that, I think, is something important for us to keep in mind during this tour, really, through the creed. Because the word mystery pops up quite a bit, and we use the word mystery to describe God himself, to describe the mystery of Jesus Christ. We'll take questions at at the end. Um, To describe the mystery of who Jesus Christ is, and then also the events of Christ's life are mysteries. We refer to them as mysteries as well. Um, So all of these things, there is a way for us to understand them, but we also have to leave room for the fact that we cannot fully exhaust them. The next point of I am who am, so the first one is that it is knowable, he is knowable but yet still a mystery. The second point about this name, that this name Yahweh, I am who am, reveals is that, Christ, that God is something ultimately different than us, someone who is ultimately different than us. By revealing his name, God at the same time reveals his faithfulness, which is from everlasting to everlasting. Um, God, who reveals his name as I am, reveals himself as the God who is always there, present to his people in order to save them. So I think I skipped a point, but in this 207, one of the things that this name I am who am reveals is that God, first of all, always exists. But also, in the sense that this is his personal name, that God is always with us. The sense that God does not abandon us. And this really becomes kind of um, one of the defining characters. Um, We would even say um, kind of a personal attribute. So if there are divine attributes which describe God and his oneness, then there are attributes which describe God and his oneness, but in relation to each of us, to us. So how, what, does, you know, what is about God that, um, that we see or feel or encounter in our personal relationship with him or with him kind of being this living God who is involved in human history and human lives. Well, one of these things is his kind of steadfast faithfulness to us. That he is always there, always present to his people. It is in um, 208 that we realize, that we see in, in this name, I am who am, how infinitely great than God is and infinitely different than we are. And this fills us with awe and reverence for him. This name leads us to, to a feeling of awe and reverence, as it did Moses when Moses um, comes before the burning bush and kick, has to kick off his sandals before the Lord. In 209, we might call this the pet name that the human race gives to God. So if 
Um, I am who am is his real name. And the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is kind of his preferred shortening of that name or um, nickname. The people, out of respect for God and his holiness and the holiness of that name, refer to him as Adonai, Adonai. And Adonai means Lord. So in the Old Testament, um, in the Jewish scriptures, instead of writing out the name, because you would not say this name, this name would only be said once a year um, at the Day of Atonement. Um, Instead of that, the word Adonai was used. Lord was used. And so often, I think even in the, well, in in like the New American Bible, um, they'll have Lord in all caps rather than Yahweh. And then in 2.10 and 2.11, we hear um, that God is merciful and gracious. And this is part of these personal attributes of God. They describe who God is in his oneness, but how we kind of see these things because he is involved in our life and in human history. And that is, so we saw that he's steadfast, that he's always present to his people. But then we also see that he is merciful and gracious. Stead, that he has this steadfast love and this faithfulness. His hesed is the Hebrew word, hesed, this steadfast love for people. Sometimes we, we, we translate that as mercy. That he continues to love us. This name also this name Yahweh points, so as we've said already, it points to the fact that God is mysterious, the fact that he is um, always there for us, the fact that he is um, infinitely mysterious and different than us, that he is filled with mercy and graciousness, this steadfast love, this has said. We're also reminded by that name that God alone is. God alone is. And this kind of gives us, um, we might say, a philosophical knowledge of God. Something that really aids our reason in understanding being and existence and God himself. His name points to the fact that God is the, the origin of all that exists. He is the only one who, who alone is, alone exists. I am who am. That all of us are what we call contingent being, contingent beings, which means we're lowercase b beings. That we exist because God exists. And that because he has created us out of nothing, we in some ways share in his act of being. Very philosophical. Um, 
And as, the, as God is alone being, those things which describe being, God perfectly possesses in all of their fullness. So this brings up what we call the transcendental perfections. Transcendental. I'm not a speller, so perfections. So these things describe being itself and therefore describe God in his, in it, you know, like God possesses them most perfectly, most fully. So everything that exists is being. God is the one perfect being. All that exists is good. All that exists is true. All that exists in some ways is one. There's a unity about it. And all things that exist are beautiful. So God is being. God is good. Not just good as an adjective, but the fullness of goodness. Good itself. God is true, not just truth, but true itself. God is one itself, unity itself. And God is beauty himself. Not just beautiful, but beauty itself. In the next sections, 214, um, the Catechism points to two other qualities of God himself, which really flow from, from what has been said thus far. And that is, it, once the Catechism focuses on, first, that God is truth, which can mean a couple different things. First of all, that he's trustworthy that everything he says and reveals is trustworthy. Second, that as truth, he kind of orders creation. Creation is made with this sort of inner truth in it. Why? Because it is made by God. There's a reasonableness about it. We can know things about the world because it is made by this God who is truth. Then also we hear that God is love. God is love. Which we've already kind of heard about by these personal attributes, that he has this kind of continual presence with his people, and that he has this steadfast love, this mercy, which he continues to show to us. Now, all that we have been, we're talking about right now applies to God's oneness. We haven't even touched this notion of the three persons, this idea of the three persons. So when we talk about God as love, it is talking about him in his oneness. In his oneness. So with that, we can, and the Catechism expounds on this a little bit more in the later section, 
we can use different images to talk about God and God's love. Um, and the scriptures often do that. So just in God and his oneness, his love for us, we can use per, um, parental images and analogy. The father's love or the mother's love. And scripture uses both of those to refer again to God and his oneness, his love for us, that God is love. It's like a father's love or a mother's love or like a spouse's love or various other images. So sometimes people freak out about this, but what we want to keep in mind is that we're talking about God in his oneness, okay? As we would any of these sort of divine attributes or these personal attributes or these transcendental perfections. Now, when we get to the section on the Trinity, more specifically, I'll hit upon this again. So if there's a little bit of question about it, it's going to get clearer. Because there's a particular person of the Trinity who goes by the name Father. That's his revealed name. And he is Father in a unique way. But we could use the name Father or the analogy or the image of Father to describe all three persons of the Trinity in their unity. Or we could use the image of a mother to describe all three persons together in their unity. Um, but there is this particular revealed name of the first person of the Trinity, which is Father. This idea then of God as love, this, this point that the catechism makes, is ultimately seen and expressed in the fact that God is one in three. The Trinity is, the revelation of the Trinity is the perfect revelation that God is love, that he is a community of love. In paragraph 221, God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has destined us to share in that exchange. One of the uh, things that I kind of dislike is the use of analogies to describe the Trinity. So I'm kind of against all analogies. So if you're going to want some sort of analogy to understand the Trinity, then you've come to the wrong place because I'm not going to give you one. Because they don't exist. They're all imperfect. And therefore, they just cause problems whenever you try to use them. Um, which makes life difficult, I know. I wish, I, I wish it could be easy, but life isn't easy, so, you know. But one of the analogies that's used is that God is l l lover, love, um, beloved, and love. The problem with that is, is that all three persons share in the one substance of divine love. So you can't just say that one's a lover, one's love. In fact, all three are love because, they're, uh, because of this unity. So the idea of God is love applies to the unity, to the oneness. 
<clears throat> that's why we can use the image of a mother or a father or a husband or a wife for the whole Trinity, for God and His oneness. Because God and His oneness is love. Then the Catechism gives us some implications. So the fact that we believe that God is one, and we believe this radically and strongly, it's at the, the very beginning of our profession, then there are ways, this changes our life. So when we believe something, it changes how we live. This, I think, goes out to those who might say that they are, and we hear this all the time, well, I'm spiritual but not religious. Well, you need, you know, in order for us to be spiritual, we profess things that form our life. You know, doctrine leads to behavior. And so the catechism says, because we take seriously that God is one, because we believe this, it changes the way that Christians live. First of all, it means that we come to know God's greatness and majesty. When we really believe this, when we allow it to kind of sink into our hearts and when we come to possess it, it fills us with wonder and awe. God is even more unique, even more powerful, even more significant because he is one, because he's the only one. Number two, it means living in thanksgiving. That if God is one, that means everything has come from him. Everything. And so therefore, we are grateful for everything. All that we have. All that we encounter. Number three, because God is one, it means that we know the unity and true dignity of all human beings. That all of us, regardless of our race or origins or ethnicity, we all have a common source. We're made in the image and likeness of one God. So it begins to, um, belief in one God helps us to understand the unity of the human race. Number four, it means making good use of created things. We also see that all of the world, all of the universe, comes from this one origin. That there's a certain unity with the rest of creation. Even though the fall has kind of created conflict in our world, in the human race, and in our experience of the world, nonetheless, all created things are somehow united, not by some sort of, you know, new age, um, you know, sharing in pantheism as if we are all God, but in that we all have the same origin. That's the unity. And then finally, um, the fifth implication is that it means trusting God in all circumstances, even in adversity. That when we take serious that there's only one God, and what that means, because as we've heard, it means that he sticks with us, that he's faithful, that he is love, then that means that we can trust him in all circumstances. 
that he's always bringing good out of evil and um, that he is going to take care of us, even if we think that we perhaps are insignificant, which in some ways we are, but um, in his eyes we are very significant and therefore we trust him. And then that leads to the catechism's treatment of the Trinity itself. So we've dealt with the unity that God is one. Now, how is he three in one? So this is where we get even more difficult. Perhaps we should have just done the first part today and then done the rest later. But um, we push on. The, uh, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we, are, um, we start this section. Now, this section is devoted to the Father because that's the first one we profess, um, God the Father, because that is the first person to, in a sense, reveal himself, to, re- to give us his name is the Father. Um, We are reminded in 2.33 that Christians are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not in their names. For there is only one God, the Almighty Father, His only Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Most Holy Trinity. So we are reminded that God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The mystery of the Holy Trinity is the central mystery of the Christian faith and life. It is at the heart of who we are. It is really the foundation of our Christian identity. That is why we continually make the sign of the cross. It is the mystery of God in himself. It is therefore the source of all the other mysteries of faith. This section sets up a distinction in paragraph 236 between theology and economy. Now, when we hear economy, we think of economics, um, sort of market, the, the study of the markets. But originally, theology just studied the divine nature, God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And economy studied everything that flowed from that, so about the church and about all those kind of things. Um, what it means then to be human because of that. Again, in 237, um, we're reminded that the Trinity, this belief that God is one in three persons, is a mystery. A mystery that is hidden, that is impossible to fully know and to grasp, but nonetheless which is revealed to us, which we can come to a knowledge of. So by the aid of human, of human reason, we could not come to the Trinity. God had to reveal himself, as he has, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. However, there are marks of the Trinity in creation. And so perhaps some of those have been used as analogies. Um, but we cannot come to a knowledge of the Trinity, that God is one in three, by the use of our reason alone. We need God to reveal himself. 
we might also say that no one would have ever imagined that or dreamed that up. Um, I don't know if that's a strong argument for Christianity, but there's a lot of things that we believe that I don't think anyone would have ever dreamed up or imagined. Um, So the revelation of God as Trinity. So God has revealed himself over time. Um, First, we know that God has, as we have just gone through, God has revealed himself in his oneness. And throughout, really, the early experience of, of the people of Israel, they did experience God in his oneness, in his fatherly love and concern. So, for instance, in paragraph 238, we're told that many religions invoke God as father. Um, that Israel, and even the Jews, would look as I should say, the Jews, um, would see God as the Father, as the one who has established this covenant, as the one who was the father of the king of Israel, or the father of the poor. These are all references from the Old Testament. In 2.39, we know that because God is love, that we can we can use the analogy of his love of, to describe his love as a father's love for his son, a mother's love for her children, these spousal images. Now, when we use that, of course, we know that God has no gender. He transcends gender. He is beyond gender. But we do have these analogies to describe God's love, the oneness of God's love. However, something happens with Jesus Christ, the fullness of revelation. In paragraph 240, which I think is one of the more important paragraphs of this section, Jesus revealed that God is Father in an unheard of sense. He is Father not only in being Creator, He is eternally Father in relation to His only Son who is eternally Son only in relation to his Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here is what is unique about what we might say God as Father versus God the Father. So God as Father describes God in his oneness, but God the Father is the first person of the Trinity. And we know he reveals himself as Father in his love for the Son, in his relationship with the Son. So the only way that we know God the Father is because of God the Son. Now, that paragraph that we just referenced said that we can know God in his oneness as creator. And in that sense, as father, too. So in the sense that, you know, as we said earlier, God is, is like a loving father. God is like a loving mother. 
God is Father in the sense that he has created all of us, in the sense that we who are creatures are sons and daughters of the Father. But then there is this God who is Father, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, the one that we call Father. He is Father in a unique way, in a way not like an analogy, not like our earthly fathers who, in a sense, created us because they were the, the origin of our existence at conception or who love us because they take care of us. The first person of the Trinity is Father because he begets the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So that is our, just so that we don't forget who the first and second are, I'll write those down, lest you forget that. Um, the, um, so that's clear, because we can use Father to apply to God in, in ways other than referring to the first person of the Trinity. When we say that the baptized are adopted sons and daughters of the Father, we mean the Father as in the first person of the Trinity, not God and his unity. When we say that the non-baptized are our brothers and sisters and our sons and, the do- sons and daughters of God, the Father, we mean God and his unity because he is their creator. Now, that's a very specialized kind of distinction, but I think it's important for us because it helps us to kind of clarify. One, I think it helps us to clarify the Trinity, but it also helps us to clarify what happens to us um, because of following Christ. The definition of the divinity of the first and second person of the Trinity. So when did the church say, this is dogma, this is something which was revealed to us by Jesus Christ and handed down by the apostles, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, the first part of this, that the Father and the Son are both divine and share in God's unity, it comes about in the Council of Nicaea in 325. And 242, paragraph 242 kind of helps us. Um, It kind of gives us a good historical um, point for this. This section of the Catechism is trying to help us to understand, one, how the Trinity was revealed, where do we see it revealed, and then, two, when was it defined? How was it defined? How did the church come to understand that this was definitively part of the revelation? And then later it kind of helped, it tries to help us as best it can to understand what the Trinity is. In the next section, 243 to paragraph 248, 
it talks about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And also through Jesus Christ, through the fullness of Revelation, we find out that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That the Father who has begot the Son, that from the two of them comes this third person, proceeds this third person. In this section, in paragraph 244, we're introduced to this word mission, mission, M-I-S-S-I-O-N. Mission is an important word. It, of course, means to be sent, to be sent. As the Father begets the Son, he sends the Son, and the Father and the Son also send on mission the Holy Spirit. So there is an action which is happening. I'm not going to put in arrows because later I'm going to put in more arrows. So it'll just get confusing. The divinity of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is, co- is, is the third person of this Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is firmly defined at the Council of Constantinople in 381. 381. In the Creed, there is a, a slight change from the original version of the Nicene Creed, in which we in the Western world, because of, of di- different concerns, added this phrase um, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, from the Father and the Son. So if you recall in the Nicene Creed, I probably just lost my spot, but let's see here. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. So that first, and the Son, was added, that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. It was added um, early, as early as the seven or eight hundreds in the West, uh, but formally um, kind of inserted in 1438. The reason for that was to emphasize that it is both the Father and the Son in their unity from which the Holy Spirit proceeds. Now, the Eastern, um, both Eastern Catholics and um, Eastern Orthodox refrained from that, one, because it was not the original version, but also to emphasize that the Father is sort of the origin of all the unbegotten origin of all. We kind of, in the, in the Latin tradition, keep this filioque way to emphasize the Holy Spirit's relation to the Father and the Son in being sent. Both of those are complementary. There's no contradiction in that. Now, the next 
um, paragraphs 249 through 256, are probably the most important and I think the ones worth reading over and over again. If you need to kind of freshen up ever on the Trinity, that's the section to read. And it's also, I think, um, especially in 253 through 256, it really kind of gives you the talking points of what the Trinity is. So in 249 and 252, the Catechism sets up for us the language that is used in explaining the Trinity. And three terms are given to us. The first one is substance, or sometimes essence or nature. Substance, essence, or nature. The second one is person or hypostasis, person or hypostasis. I think we'll prefer person. Um, And then the last one is relation. Sometimes we call it divine relation. So those are the three crucial words. Substance describes God and his oneness. So the substance of God is that he is love, he is true, he is steadfast mercy, he is simple, he is one, he is unity, he is beauty, he is eternal, he is um, omniscient, he is omnipotent. The person describes these three individual these three individuals. And then relation is the unique way that a person is related to the other ones. Which seems easy enough. So that really is the first step, I think, in beginning to wrap our mind around what we profess with the Trinity. And then the catechism in this section called the Dogma of the Holy Trinity, beginning in 253, it gives you three planks, P-L-A-N-K, that's just a, it's not a fancy word or anything like that, three points to really explain the Trinity. So if you want to try to explain the Trinity, you can just say these three sentences. And if someone asks any other questions, then just say, I don't know. But, (laughs) but, (laughs) amen, (laughs) amen. So the first is, is that the Trinity is one. Or you could get a little more specific and say, you know, God is, is one substance. One substance. 
Number two, that the divine persons are really distinct from one another. So these three persons are really distinct. They're one because God is one substance, but they're really distinct from each other. Now the question is, is how are they distinct from each other? How are they distinct from each other? They're distinct from each other in their relationship with each other. One definition of this word person is a subsistent relation. So the most basic you can get without being broken down into smaller parts that can be related to other things is this notion of subsistent person. You can't break it down any further, but it can still relate to others. I think in, in not, and this isn't an analogy, so don't use it as an analogy, but kind of um, a similar kind of concept is the atom. If you break an atom down, it's no longer whatever it is. But it can, but at the level of the atom, it can bond with, diff, with other different things. It can relate to other different things. So a gold atom is a gold atom, but if you break it down, it's no longer a gold atom. It's, you know, it's just quarks and protons and neutrons and electrons. But as an atom, it can bond with a complementary element, another complementary atom. So that's this idea of a, a subsistent person, of a subsistent relation, person as a subsistent relation. But the, dis, the difference between the persons is how they're related to each other. And that's what makes them distinct, is their relationship. So... When we do that, let us now look at the three persons. And this will also explain why they have these names, these divinely revealed names, why they revealed themselves under these names. So the Father is related to the Son in that he begets the Son. He sends forth the Son. He begets. That's what's unique about him. Now, the Son is related to the Father because He is begotten. He is sent forth. That begetting, we can use the word begetting, having been begotten, which is kind of a complex word, but we might call that filiation. We might call begetting paternity. And thus the name for the Father comes from his unique relationship, which is as the one who who begets the Son. So we know the Father because of his unique relationship with the Son. We know the Son because of his unique relationship with the Father, of having been begotten by the Father. One who begets, of course, is a father. 
one who is begotten or is a son. Now that's the easier two. The last one is a little more challenging. The Father and the Son send forth the Spirit. So the Spirit is pushed, or as we say down south, pushed um, by the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit has been pushed by the Father and the Son. Now, it's not unique because it's the same action of the Father and Son to push. But the Spirit being pushed, so in the passive sense, having been pushed, experiences that as a unique relationship with the Father and the Son. So the way to distinguish the Holy Spirit is that it has been pushed as opposed to being pushed by the Father and the Son. Because the Father and the Son, well, that, it, doesn't really, it doesn't really show us how the Father and the Son are also distinct because it's one action. But the fact that the Spirit has come forth from them, has been pushed by them, reveals to us the Holy Spirit. Now that's, that's top-notch theology right there. We call that passive spiration, is the unique relationship of the Holy Spirit. Passive spiration. Having been spirited forth, as opposed to spirating. Active spiration is what the Father and the Son. So I don't know if there's really any sort of analogy um, I mean, I think the, the best image to kind of help that is, say you're standing and two people are simultaneously pushing you. Well, their action in some ways is one, because it's one push, but you feel two separate sets of hands upon you, and that helps you to distinguish the two. So that might be the best way to understand it. Um, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit more towards the end of the creed as we proceed there. But we call, therefore, the Spirit the Holy Spirit because it has been spirated by the Father and the Son. And unlike the rest of creation, the Spirit shares in the same divine substance as the Father and the Son. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.